This is the Dave and Shecky Show. We got this groovy podcast for ya. Reviewing crazy tunes or quoting Twain and Sting and Doom. We'll bring ideas to share like bonus points for extra flair because it's the freaking Dave and Shecky Show. Check your show, we're bringing you this groovy review. We might preview movies, bake some bread, or drink some smoothies. So come on, have way too much caffeine. You roll up some rivers, I'll reference some raffy. This is the Dave and Checky Show. Yeah, Zanzibar, can I help you? Uh, yes, is Michael Hunt there? Uh, wait a minute. I, I heard these tapes before. I see. I don't know what is. Uh, where were you going with Zanzibar? Well, I'm going nowhere. It's where you're going with your career. What? You've obviously called to audition for the uh, oh. the role as uh, bartender at my bar. I see. Yes, I'm very excited to uh, become a an active member of your bartending community at the Zanzibar. That's correct. You Well, you've pronounced it right, so you got that one up there. You speak English. That's a good start. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm halfway in, I think. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Absolutely not. All right. Now we're talking. Okay, because I'm located in Staten Island. I didn't know if you knew where I was. I'm right over by the dump. Oh. Right near the, uh, the spring dump there. Mm. The kills, I think it's called. I know oh, what it's yeah. called. I'm just seeing if you know what it's called. I think it's called something like... Something kills. Children around this dump die of weird diseases uh, type of dump. Is that correct? I thought it was Fort Green Kills. Perhaps. Everybody around it. I uh, have not done an, a lot of research into it, but I know that weird shit happens around that dump. All right. Fair enough. You uh, got the job. Uh, thank you, but I, you know what? Uh, well, oh, you, you called me. <laughs> I didn't ask this for this. I thought uh, you knew where I was. I thought I was calling Zany's Bar. Which oh, that's a, in uh, Ridgefield Park. Oh, uh, you know what? I'm going to hang up now and, and call them. But thank you for your time. Hey, would you need a good chop shop? Because I run a chop shop, too. A, a chop shop? I, I chop up cars and I sell parts. I it's a see. chop shop. A Zanzibar. It's great. That's exactly right. <laughs> I, it's I an illegal underground chop shop disguised as a bar see i was going to get to that next but you don't even want to come here so apparently you don't want to make extraordinarily good money for a bartender do you employ lizard people i uh whoa what are you louis ck i am not louis ck you're sure I'm you could be. I'm. I'm okay with that. I, <laughs> I would. I am. I am not Louis C.K. But I appreciate that you would be okay with that. I mean, all that he does. Uh, yeah, I'm a more. You of sure a, you don't want to do that right now? What? Come on down to the bar and masturbate in front of me. Oh, I thought like you meant Louis C.K. I thought you meant do a stand-up routine. Oh. Yeah, that's okay, too. Oh, boy. All right. Well, uh, welcome, 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 everyone. Well, did I interrupt you? Were you finished with your bit? Yeah, the bit is over. The bit is over. Excellent. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to episode number 99. 99 of the Middle-Aged Cool Kids Super Terrific Podcast featuring your pals. 
see the bit's not over. If the bit was over, I wouldn't be doing this right now. But apparently, I like Dustin Hoffman. What? I have a tooth problem. Oh. And throughout this whole podcast, I'm going to be doing it with a toothache. Please do not do that. It's safe. Uh, it's, it's incredibly safe. Pork chop, schnapp sauce. Well, he didn't have a tooth problem. He was just a weirdo imitating Humphrey Bogart. Who I think may have had a tooth problem. Hey, now we're getting to it. This is like, this is like Clapton, you know, influencing Van Halen and then Van Halen influencing, you know, some other schmuck. I see. Excellent. Excellent for all you schmucks out there. Uh, Dave has just painted you with a rather broad brush. Not everybody who was influenced by Eddie Van Halen is a schmuck. Can That's we agree correct. to that? Okay. You've kind of put that out there, and it's a little dickish. Everybody was influenced by Eddie Van Halen. Well, there How you go. How could you not be influenced? If you were alive when Eddie Van Halen was on this earth, you were influenced by Eddie Van Halen. Excellent. Whether you know it or not. All right. Well, now they all know it. Do they? And by they all, I mean your brother. Whoa. <laughs> he, he for sure is listening. That is my guess. I don't know. All right. You don't have to know. Uh, And hi, Nancy. Um, Hi, Jinx. Hi, Jinx and hi, Nancy. Listen, are you ready for today's show? I thought this was today's show. What are we doing, yesterday's show? I meant the the actual topic. Ah. Yeah. All right. Today is all about your scrutiny of... Top 10 bassist lists. Oh, good. I'm prepared for that. I pre- I took the time to prepare for that for the last 50 years. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking you're somewhat prepared. First bass player I scrutinized was a guy when I was three years old. Who was that? I don't know. I but I didn't like what he was playing. All right. Now, <clears throat> I have four lists here, and I feel like that's too much. I'd rather have four sticks. Off of Zeppelin Four. Oh, okay. So I'm going to give you a choice. All right. Do you want to include the Rolling Stones' greatest bassist of all times list? Well, that would be Daryl Jones. Would Get you... it? Because he was the Rolling Stones' greatest bass uh-huh. player. Do you want to include the Top Tens dot com greatest bassist? Top Tens. What is this? Uh... Ranker dot com. Oh Jesus! Greatest bassist. Well, we got to go for them. Or They're my favorite. Guitar World's. Greatest I'm bassist. A base, base world. Is there any bass player magazine top ten? Uh, let's see. I didn't find one, but God damn it! How about basstalk.net? What is that? I don't know. Is that something you're? Uh... Is it? Maybe. All right. Let's let's what? just okay. Uh-huh. Let's just do it this way. Okay. You give me whatever list you want. All right. I am going <clears> to go with. See, I want to pick either Guitar World or Rolling Stones, but not both. And I think Rolling Stone has, sometimes they're right, but sometimes they're woke. Rolling Stone. Okay, then go with Guitar World. I'll go with Guitar World and maybe Ranker. Okay. Okay. Take that. We're going to do top ten. Guitar World's top ten. Are you ready, David? Yeah, let me just guess who they think is the number ten. Okay. First. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, 
Guitar World's number 10, according to you. Paul McCartney. It's going to be... Marcus. Them for even knowing who he is, okay? Marcus Miller. It says, unlike Jocko's spectacular rise and fall, Brooklyn-born Marcus Miller rose gradually through the ranks to become a universally copied, game-changing bassist. Do you agree? Uh, yes, he has. Now, what are they saying about Jocko? How dare they mention Jocko? <clears throat> they just mentioned him. Uh, don't get, to, don't be alarmed. It says, weaned on the New York City club scene, Miller broke in as a Gotham Session ace, an invaluable training ground. From there, he became a Grammy-winning composer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist for the likes of Miles Davis, Luther Vandross, and David Sanborn, finally focusing on becoming a solo artist in the 90s. In the 90s. So are you? do you feel good about Marcus Miller at number 10, According uh, to Guitar World. Yeah, they can say whatever they want. Well, what do you say? In my opinion, uh-huh. he is higher than number 10. Oh, shit. He is more valuable than that. Okay. Uh, Marcus Miller is one of the most imitated bass players in jazz fusion since, since Jocko or Stanley Clark. Basically, you got Stanley Clark, Jocko... Couple other guys, and then Marcus came around. And then Marcus, everyone started trying to sound like Marcus. What about them apples? I'm just, I'm just listening. I don't want to interrupt you when you. Right. Uh... Marcus, uh, you know, when Marcus played with Miles, that's when he truly became Marcus. So stick that in your pockets. And Farkas. All right. Do you want to uh, find out what number 10 from Ranker.com, the people's the people's choice? All right. Number 10, according to Ranker.com. Sting. Chris Squire. Ooh, from Yes. No. Is he? I don't know. Yeah, he is. How do you not know? Because I don't like Yes. Whoa. Sorry. So for you, Yes is a no. Spoiler alert. If you were Yoko Ono and you had a gallery, you would have put up a sign that said no. And John Lennon would have looked up and seen it and said, I don't want to be with this chick. And he'd still be alive today because he wouldn't have gotten murdered at the Dakota. Okay, I would. Okay. Somehow, I am not Yoko. I'm just saying. I don't know what I'm saying. All right. Fill in the blanks. This is what I'm saying. Who are you saying? Chris Squire? Yes. Eh. He's in the top 10 rock bass players, but... You think so? I would say in the rock bass players, you could argue that. Uh, this but, is best rock bassist. Oh, they it's didn't rock. Have, they didn't have a best bassist uh, in general. Oh, well, okay. I mean, number, are there even 10 great rock bass players? I guess we'll find out together. Okay. From Ranker.com. Uh, are you ready for number nine from Guitar I'm World? I'm just kidding. Of course there are. I see. Yeah, okay. Number nine. From Guitar World. Yes. Chris Squire, you know, how, how, 
How can you mention Marcus Miller as number two? Wait, oh, wait a second. It's a different list. Yeah, exactly. but it's not even the same category as what you're telling me. One was just bass players, and the other one is this rock is, bass guitar players. Guitar World is the 100 best bass players of all time. Okay, that's a good list. And, and what's this ranker was what? The all-time best rock bassists. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. That's a great category. Retards. Let me see if they have all bases. It didn't seem like they did. It's okay. It's just, you know, typical of that sort of uh, put people in a box kind of thing. I mean, I could have been wrong. I mean, what are you going to do? Then it limits everything. And no. quite frankly, the best bass players are not rock bass players. <laughs> they, uh, they do not have the best bass players. They just have best rock bassists and uh, famous bassists. <laughs> So they're not they're 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 a little uh, tunnel visioned. Would you like All me right. to switch to something else? Yeah, we gotta switch them out with a Rolling Stone. All right. How well, about that? Okay. All right. So number ten, according to Rolling Stone, you're not supposed to. Look. I didn't look. I just saw it, but I didn't look. That's because that's not number ten. I Good. did that on purpose in case Whoa. I caught you looking. <clears throat> number ten, according to Rolling Stones, best. Bassists of all time. Jack Cassidy. Ron Carter. How noble of them. That's my man, Ron Carter, Q-Tip says proudly on the outro to a Tribe Called Quest's super funky low-end theory track versus from the abstract. Well, that's true. They did sample some Ron Carter. A A milestone for the intersection of jazz and hip-hop, the track was just another day at the office for the great Ron Carter, who's been turning up on history-making sessions for 60 years and counting. I would have to argue that that was less than just another day at the office for Ron Carter. Oh, really? Yeah, because, you know, Ron Carter has played with some of the greatest jazz musicians there are. He's part of the, the famous Miles Davis, you know, quintet. Quart, quartet? No, quintet. Uh, wait a second. Edit this part out. I'm not taking it out. Uh, Tony, Hervey, uh, uh. Yeah, quintet. What the fuck? <clears throat> anyway, I'm just saying. Uh, I feel like he's lowering his uh, artistic level to record some samples for uh, Q-Tip. I see. Compared to you know groundbreaking work he did with Miles Davis. All right. So it's not, and and the fact that they would go out of their way to mention that as what he's what he is. Yeah. That is stupid and ridiculous. All right. He's a jazz, you know, this is an elder statesman of, of post-bop hard jazz, hard bop jazz, cool jazz even. Really? Yeah, I mean, he's been around since the fucking 50s, and uh, just to mention Q-tip, it's so it's so. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. what I was saying, Rolling Stone. I mean, this is what we get, get for Rolling Stone. They're and, not you know, going to deep dive for you. They're just going to come out and try to sound like they're elitists but they're also going to be a little on the woke tip and not really give you the information that you personally would want to hear dave ron carter's cool but if you're going to go that route i'll go paul chambers 
All right. Well, he, he's pre-Ron Carter. We're just at number 10 here. All right. Okay, let's go back to the guitar world for number nine. Are oh, you geez. ready? Okay. So which, so far, Ron Carter, Marcus Miller, do you think these are appropriate top tens? Uh, yeah, they should be in there. That's, okay. that's fair enough. Okay. <clears throat> number nine, according to guitarworld.com, is Ray Brown. Okay. Yeah, he's great. He's uh I'm surprised that they're mentioning these people. Okay. I'm surprised that Guitar World has done Marcus and then Ray Brown as number nine. That's uh, very commendable. <clears throat> Impeccable technique, gorgeous sound, and driving swing define Ray Brown's contribution to jazz. Brown, nineteen twenty six to two thousand and two, was present from the inception of Bebop in the forties, playing alongside Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Bud Powell and was founder of the Modern Jazz Quartet. Yeah, you know, I mean, how do you compare Chris Squire to Ray Brown? Well, I... It's like insanity. This is the thing. That's why I wanted to do one legit type list, and then also one people type list. But uh, the people type list was only rock bassists. So it wasn't, it wasn't good enough for you. So, Ray Brown, anything more to add about Ray Brown, David? Uh, no, that sounds fair enough. He is a pioneer of the uh, bebop bass playing. He's one of the... He, the thing about Ray Brown was the how long he was around for. Mm-hmm. A very long career. And uh, uh, I believe they said Ray Brown was very easy to play with. Okay. Because his beat was so, I think, in the center of the of the groove. He was not laid back. He wasn't ahead or behind. He was right on, so it was very easy just to play with him. Very, very perfect sense of time, from what I recall people saying about Ray Brown. It says the Ray Brown bass method, first published in 1963, influenced a generation of jazz players. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Number nine. I Honestly, oh. I think Ray Brown is more influential than Ron Carter. Okay. And I think he's better. All right. Number nine, according to Rolling Stone, Paul McCartney. What do you think about that? I think that's cool, man. You agree that he's a great bass player? Yes. A top 10? Now you're talking about just he's a top ten. He's or? a top 10 influential bass player, yes. Okay. He really is. So it's like it's hard, to, it's hard to take away the impact that he's had on music. All right. And uh, it wouldn't have happened if he couldn't play. He obviously can play. He knew what to play. You know, you might think he's cheesy or whatever. But uh, eh, he influenced, you know, so many people. The Beatles 
probably influenced more musicians than any other band, at least from that, definitely from that generation and maybe ever. I mean, absurd. The impact that they had at, uh, from the, uh, whatchamacallit, show. Uh, Why am I spacing out? Really Ed big, Sullivan Show. I was going to say, really big shoe, that guy? Yeah, the Ed Sullivan Show. That, that performance alone influenced so many people. And it's not just rock musicians. It's they, he, he influenced so many modern fusion jazz rock musicians. So, yeah, he's huge. I, I, you can't take that away from him. It's just like, and the same thing with Ringo for drummers. You can't take that away. And honestly, if they were to put in the top 10 bass players, Gene Simmons, you could probably say the same thing about him. Because there's so many people who are influenced by Gene Simmons. So it's a rough call there. He's not, they're not the greatest musicians, but they could be the greatest presence. I see what you're saying. Greatest impact in bass. All right. Well, Paul McCartney has definitely had the greatest impact in bass. He's impacted way more people than Jaco Pistorius. I mean, Jocko was influenced by Paul, Paul McCartney. I see. In a, in a, on a small level. I mean, he, has, he does his own version of Blackbird. There you go. It says here, uh, it's hard to think of Paul McCartney as being underrated in any category, but for all the praise he's earned as a singer-songwriter and live performer, it's quite possible he hasn't gotten enough for his low-key, low-end verve. He first took up the bass as a matter of necessity after Sue Sutcliffe quit the Beatles in Hamburg in 1961. There's a theory that I maliciously worked Stu out of the group in order to get the prize chair of bass, McCartney told biographer Barry Miles. Forget it. Nobody wants to play bass, or nobody did in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's one of the people who's responsible for bringing bass to a little bit more of the public's eye. Uh, And this is the thing. Paul McCartney was influenced by James Jamerson, the Motown bass player. That's why Paul McCartney plays so bubbly. His notes, his playing is all uh, melodic and, and bouncy, just like James Jamerson. James Jamerson was one of the first people to bring bass into the foregrounds of, of recordings. And, and uh, so Paul is directly influenced by James Jamerson. So in a way, it's all connected like that. Uh, what were you saying about him, though? Uh well, it says here, his playful melodic style in that era owed much to Motown's James Jamerson, hey now. whom he often credited as his biggest influence on the instrument. There you go. Now, check this out. Yeah. James Jamerson never changed his strings. And the reason he didn't change his strings was because if you change the strings, his bass would be too bright and it would have too much attack in the mix. And if it was that bright... He wouldn't be able to play all bouncy and melodic like he was. He would have had to have played just the root notes and not gotten in, and it would have gotten in the way of things. But because it had such a dull tone, because his strings were eight years old and dirty, his tone was dull and round, and it didn't get in the way of the other instruments. So it allowed him to create this different sound that they could then bring up in the mix and it wouldn't interfere. That's very cool. And in a similar way, Ringo Starr put towels on his drums. They call them tea towels. They're really just like little washcloths mm-hmm. or small towels. He would put those on all his drums. And if you listen to Ringo's toms and his snare, it's all dead sounding. That is a sound that they totally embraced in the 70s in studio musicians. 
that's a studio sound that he basically was doing when everyone else was using a, a wide open sound. So Ringo's tone, like James Jamerson, allowed the instrument to, to come out and be noticed differently. Like you could say that Ringo was a primitive player or he didn't play well, which is wrong. But you could say that he can't, you know, you could say he's not as good as whoever. But his tom fills are so unique that they influenced everyone. And that's the other thing. Uh, <clears throat> the common person might think, oh, the Beatles, they're shitty musicians or whatever, if they think that. Some people did. But guys like Steve Lukather and fucking. Uh, Lee Sklar and Greg Bissonette and all the session musicians from Los Angeles idolized Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. They idolize them, and to this day, Greg Bissonette and Steve Lukather are in Ringo's band because they idolize them so much. It's not just the money. They idolize Ringo Starr, and they respect him. And so the Beatles had such an influence on the greatest musicians that it's, it's ridiculous. There you go. Well, number nine. So do you think he's too low on their list? He's almost too low, yeah. I see. And it's not just, it's not a skill thing. Obviously, Jocko could play circles around Paul McCartney, but... It's an influence thing. Yeah, it's, and you know, it's, and, and playing for a song is not about playing circles around someone. It's about serving the music and making the music something unique. Gotcha. So, Paul McCartney did that. All right. I mean, he's... Paul and Ringo are more influential than John Lennon to session musicians. John Lennon is more influential to people who like songwriters and, and people who are into songs and lyrics. But people who are into music, when they talk about the Beatles, they're talking about Paul and Ringo and George to a certain extent. No one's talking about John Lennon's guitar playing. Right. Very few people. His songwriting is brilliant. But not, he's not. He wasn't the musician in the band. Okay. You ready for number nine or you want to go on? I mean, number eight? Yeah, yeah. Number eight from Guitar World. Sting. Anthony Jackson. Oh. Well, he is a killer. City-born Anthony Jackson is one of the most important bassists in history. Hey now. With an uncompromising approach to his art, starting with the diverse influences of James Jamerson, Jack Cassidy, and French composer Olivier Messiaen, and a vision of the electric bass as a member of the guitar family with the tone of a piano's bass strings, Jackson invented the six-string contrabass guitar in the early 70s, launching the wave of extended range basses. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, I always see his name with contrabass. I never knew what that actually meant. But uh, Anthony Jackson, very, very, very good bass player. Yeah. Not much you can say about him other than he's a killer. Uh, OJ's, yeah, he Billy played. Cole, he played. I think, Khan, I think he plays bass on uh, 
song, that a song "Money" by OJ's Steely Dan. Uh, yeah, he's he's uh, he's a monster. Yep, Paul Simon, Quincy Jones, Keeps Anthony Jackson was it was one of the best bass players for like thirty years. Oh yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Well, he is number eight on Guitar World's top ten. Yeah, he's not as influential as some other guys, but he's he's right in there. Yeah. So the, the solid list so far. Yeah, from Guitar World. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number eight from Rolling Stone, Jocko Pistorius. they've jumped the gun I see Jocko is you know arguably within the top three there's no way around it and you could probably just say he's the number one you can't really number eight is a is a slap in the face it's not a slap in the face but it's a lack of respect for what he really was that's fine it says here uh, my name is John Francis Pistorius the third and I'm the greatest bass player in the world that was Jaco Pastorius' opening line to Joe Zawinol when he met the Weather Report keyboardist backstage at a 74 Miami show. Zawinol scoffed at the time, but he wasn't laughing a few years later once Pastorius had joined the group and helped turn them into bona fide fusion superstars. Jaco's 1976 self-titled debut, where he played high-speed bebop, with ease and dazzled with chiming harmonics set a new standard for electric bass virtuosity. Joining Weather Report the same year, he thrilled audiences with his signature fretless sound and cocky flair and forever banished the notion that bass was a background instrument. Ah, man, Jocko was Jimi Hendrix of bass. Yeah, that, it's just it's that simple. So he, they are way, way off here with number eight. Yeah, I mean, the only thing you could say is, only thing you could say against him, other than that he was a maniac, uh, is that, okay, maybe he didn't serve the role of a bass player as his primary interest, perhaps. Uh-huh. Maybe he thought, you know, his, he came off a little bit more like a soloist, and other bass players maybe lay it down a little more like a bass player. Gotcha. That might be the only thing you could say, but you'd have to be silly to concentrate on that uh, Jocko took the bass to a whole nother level is I mean I don't know what what, what Herbie Hancock wrote about Jocko on uh, on his album liner notes probably says it 
better than me. But, yeah. There was no one... No one liked Jocko. He could play... It's, he played shit on the bass that no one played before. He no one played like no one played like a saxophonist on the bass before Jocko. Anyone who does it now is copying him. And you can hear anyone who sounds like Jocko, they sound like him because they copied Jocko. I mean, he's totally groundbreaking. Not to mention his spirit and his vibe and his and his uh attitude. I mean You know, it's like fucking Neil Cassidy from On the Road on bass. I mean, it was, uh, they don't make people like that. That's just, he just, that's, I don't know. You know, he was bipolar and all, so he had the, the other side, but when he was healthy and on his high, high parts, he was, you couldn't top Jocko. I don't even know what to say. What can you say about him? And it's also so tragic how he died, so that just makes it even more crazy. But yeah, there was probably, I would say, four years where he was on top of the world from like 1976 to 1980. It says here, uh, as, a flash, as, as flashy a player as he was, he was also a stellar collaborator. From the mid-70s through the 80s, preceding his tragic death at age 35, Pistorius's revolutionary four-string approach was a perfect match for everyone from Pat Metheny to Jimmy Cliff and especially Joni Mitchell's increasingly adventurous songwriting on albums like Hajira. It was as if I dreamed him because I didn't have to give him any instruction, Mitchell once said of Jocko. I could just kind of cut him loose and stand back and celebrate his choices. Yeah, I mean, Jocko was a little bit more of a... Jocko was way heavier than Joni Mitchell and Joni Mitchell is heavy. Jocko's way beyond her. All right. Well, number eight, he's at least in the top ten for Rolling Stone, but you're not agreeing with the placement. No. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, no. He was, he's, he's number one, I think. Okay. I honestly think he's number one. I don't, I don't, can't think of anyone who was, I can't think of anyone who was better or more influential at, at, at that time. Okay. Let's head over to Guitar World at number seven. Or All did you right. want to say something else? No. Guitar World's number seven. John Entwistle. not bad I, I think he's a top 10 in my opinion Rock's original lead bassist was also a highly influential cornerstone of the instrument 
despite his unique style having impacted Getty Lee, Chris Squire, Billy Sheehan, and countless others. Among Entwistle's trailblazing musical and sonic efforts as a founding member of The Who include the use of treble frequencies, the development of round-wound strings with roto sound, technical innovations such as typewriter tapping and strumming, and bi-amping, splitting his signal between overdriven high-end and clean low-end. Entwistle was one of the first bass players to use uh, alembic basses. And they were a small company out of, out of uh, Northern California that uh, the Grateful Dead made popular. Well, the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane were the first bands to use their guitars and basses. And they're famous for splitting the signal. Uh, you, if you had four strings, you could have each string go to a different channel. Oh. And then you could have four speakers and you could have each spe- note coming out of a different speaker if you wanted and this way, your uh, frequencies wouldn't interrupt each other, and supposedly you could get a, the clearest oh, bass tone out okay. there. And so, anyway, that's what uh, Jack Cassidy was probably the first bass player to use that with airplane. And Jerry, Jerry's Olympic guitars are worth like you know two hundred thousand or a hundred thousand dollars or some shit like that now. But he had like several of them that he played, and he played Olympic for probably most of his career. And then. Not not only that, not only have Entwistle, Jerry, and Jack Cassidy, Stanley Clark also got into Alembic. And Stanley Clark was the number one bass player in jazz fusion until Jocko came around. But there was about three or four years there where Stanley was kind of a bass superstar, pretty much from 72 to 76. 76, Jocko comes and just everything changed. And then, after Jocko, Marcus. That's what it is, basically. It's like Stanley, Jocko, Marcus. Those are the three guys like from, from 72 to 82. And before Stanley, you had guys like Doug Rausch, who was a big influence on Marcus Miller, who not many people know about at all. Uh and other than Doug Roush, who was another monster back then. Uh, when I think of it, I'll think of it. Okay. Uh, oh, Larry Graham. Oh, okay. So it was all coming out of San Francisco, basically. Like all that shit's out of San Francisco. All those bases, all those, the Olympic, uh, the Olympic guitar companies out of San Francisco, basically. And uh, yeah, all that shit, all that music, fucking Sly and the Family Stone. San Francisco was dominating from about 67 to about 72. Santana, Doug Roush played with Santana. It was all out of the Bay Area right then. So do you agree with John Entwistle as a number seven? Uh, is he a top 10? I think he's a top 10, okay. yeah. I think he is a top 10. He's right. Yeah, I mean, that gets difficult, but he's right. He's very arguably a top 10 for sure. Excellent. Great skill, unique, and uh, highly influential. I mean, I, I think, you know, his ba- he has a bass solo on My Generation. Like, that's like, what, 1966? That's a pop song from 1966 with a bass solo in it. That's, that might be the first. Can you think of a, you know what I mean? I can't think of a bass solo in, in a rock song before that. I don't think so. Can you? 
No, I mean, I that would, was the shit. I would be hard-pressed to think of anything ever. Uh, let's go to number seven from Rolling Stone. Are you ready? Yeah. Number seven, Larry Graham. Yeah, he's right in there, you know. Larry Graham is definitely top ten. He could be less. He could be more. As a member of Sly and the Family Stone, Larry Graham helped popularize the slap bass technique with hits like Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again and Dance to the Music. He developed the unmissable percussive approach. Graham calls it thumping and plucking while playing in a trio with his mother in San Francisco. When the drummer quit, I would thump the strings with my thumb to make up for the bass drum and pluck the strings with my fingers to make up for the backbeat snare drum, he remembered. These lines erupted in Sly and the Family Stone songs, inverting the traditional roles of instruments in popular music and making an indelible impression on future icons like Prince, a friend and frequent collaborator of Graham's who once called Graham my teacher. If you listen to records from the 50s, you'll find that all the melodic information is mixed very loud, and the rhythmic information is mixed rather quietly, Brian Eno explained in 1983. (laughs) From the time of Sly and the Family Stone's fresh album, there's a flip over, where the rhythm instruments, particularly the bass drum and bass, suddenly became the important instruments in the mix. Yeah, it happened before Fresh. Fresh is 73. That shit happened in the 60s. So eat a dick, Brian Eno? Well, I think that's not a compliment for him. I see. What do you mean? I think he's eating a few dicks. Oh, I see. I don't know who he is. Brian Eno, isn't he uh, the... uh, Is he like a Roxy Music dude or something? He's like that, yes. Brian Ferry, Brian Eno, he's one of those cats. Yeah, I don't know that kind of music. Hey. Brian Eno Phillips. Emo Phillips. Now, Brian Eno might be a little hipper than Brian Ferry. I don't know. I'm just uh you're the you're the music person. All right. Well, anyway, yeah. Uh yeah, you know, Larry Graham basically basically invented slapping. If he didn't invent it, he certainly popularized it. Gotcha. And this is the thing, between Larry Graham and Doug Roush, you have modern bass playing in an, uh you have the modern techniques that everyone's into these days. Because this is the thing. Uh-huh. Like Jocko took over in the 70s. Mhm. For like I said, like those four years, seventy six to eighty, but he doesn't. He didn't slap. He wasn't a slapper. He didn't slap. He had a fret. He played only fretless. Ninety nine percent of the time, he played fretless. Maybe on every recording he played was probably fretless. And you you don't slap on a fretless. If you do, it just you don't. It doesn't sound the same. I see. So Jocko was not a slapper. He is the opposite of someone who slapped fully 16th note oriented finger style like uh like Rocco Prestia who should be on this fucking list somewhere okay because without Rocco you don't have Jocko 
And without fucking Larry, you don't have Prince, that's for sure. But Doug Roush, Doug Roush invented the double thumb, and uh, Larry Graham invented the uh, slap, both in San Francisco. So, once again, San Francisco, kicking ass. It wasn't just psychedelic rock. It was fucking all kinds of shit coming out of there. Interesting. All right, so that was Rolling Stones number seven. Let's head back over to Guitar World for their number six. Oh, you know who else fucking lived in the Bay Area? Who? George Duke. Oh, okay. Number six. Are you ready? Mm Hmm. Don't look. All right. Number six on Guitar World is Ron Carter. All right. They seem to like Ron Carter. Uh, I think he was number ten on the other list. What does Guitar World say about him? Hopefully they don't mention Q-Tip. Uh, Ron Carter has anchored the jazz scene since the late 50s, with early influences including Oscar Pettiford and Paul Chambers. In 1961, he made his first recording with avant-garde legend Eric Dolphy. Carter is best known for his work with the Miles Davis Quintet, which he joined in 1963. The Quintet recorded many landmark albums, including Seven Steps to Heaven, Miles Smiles, and Live at the Plugged Nickel. Along with Tony Williams on drums and Herbie Hancock on piano, Carter explored and established innovative rhythm section techniques that set the stage for all modern jazz to follow. This is true. So you like what they have to say more than what Rolling Stone had to say? Yes, definitely. You don't like the Q-tip that makes no sense to you? No sense. All right. Also, out of the fucking San Francisco, you know what else we have? (laughs) David Garrett fucking Baldy. Okay. Tower of Power. And not to mention fucking Mike Clark, okay? Okay. Relax. You relax. We're doing top ten bassists. I'm just saying all fucking interconnected. Okay. You think think one thing, but you didn't know the other things. Okay. That was my thing I said for MTV. You think you know one thing. But it's all about these other things. You never said anything to MTV. They stole my idea for for Cribs. Oh, all right. Anyway, number six, according to Rolling Stone. Are you ready? Yes. Jack Bruce. Jack. Bruce. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to say no. Not a top 10 for you. No, but Jack Bruce is great, but no. Jack Bruce is... <sighs> what I He's a bit out of tune then, isn't he? Let me just say this. Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker got much of the attention in Cream, but Jack Bruce gave the group the thrust to make them a true power trio. Look, I love Jack Bruce. Okay. But I, I don't think that he's a top 10 bass player. All right, that's fine. He's a great bass player, but if you really listen to it, it's so, he's out of tune so much. Oh, is he? I think so. Okay. Uh, but he plays fretless, so you know you got to be in tune. But if you're not gonna be in tune, well, you know, play fucking fretted bass. Boom. Black Sabbath bassist Geezer Butler once said, "I went to see Cream mainly because of Clapton, and I was mesmerized at Jack Bruce's playing." I didn't know a bass player could do those things, filling in where the rhythm guitar would normally be. Bruce played jittery, tumbling lines under the trio's group vocals on I Feel Free, 
Smart Harmonies on Sunshine of Your Love, and basically his own riff under Clapton's On Strange Brew. Well, here's the thing about uh-huh. Jack Bruce. Jack Bruce was was a jazz bass player. Mm-hmm. He played upright. I see. And Ginger Baker was a jazz drummer, and they played jazz together. They weren't rock musicians. I see. And then they got into rock music and, you know, changed history. So Jack might have actually been a better acoustic bass player when they could hear, you know, like when the uh-huh. music wasn't so loud. Maybe maybe he was better like that. Gotcha. I'm not trying to diss Jack Bruce, but I don't see him. I don't see him. In, I don't see it like that. Okay. That was uh, number six on Rolling Stone. You do not agree with it. No, I lo- like I said, though, I do like Jack Bruce. That's fine. Number five on GuitarWorld.com's top bass players of all time list. Number five, Stanley Clark. I think that makes sense. There was a time when Stanley was basically on top of everything. It says, The first superstar of playing the bass. Ah. Philadelphia-born Clark revolutionized and liberated the low end for a boundless wave of followers, including his SMV bandmates Marcus Miller and Victor Wooten in myriad ways. Yes. Stanley Clark. Very... uh, very very powerful, but he okay. Well, Stanley was also an upright bass player. He was an acoustic bass player. Oh, okay. And he has amazing finger strength on his right hand, so he could play very fast and very powerfully, and that's what he did. It says uh, the Coltrane inspired Clark took the acoustic bass to new technical and musical heights, and with Train and Hendrix in his ears, innovated by reaching upward on the bass guitar. Via tenor and piccolo versions. Piccolo bass. Uh, from Return to Forever, his seminal solo sides, and his funky pairings with George Duke, to the right of strings, his composing and conducting film scores, and producing, Clark remains the lord of the low frequencies. Now let me just think here. All right, please do. This was not five. I don't think Stanley ever played with Miles Davis. Uh, they didn't seem to mention that he did. Yeah, that tells you something. What does it tell? Oh, not good enough for Miles? It tells me that Miles didn't hear something in Stanley's playing. Maybe it was a personality issue. I don't know, but I know that you can trace all the roots of the great fusion musicians back to Miles. Oh, okay. They, they worked with him at one point and then went on to be great. Yeah. That's George Duke, Billy Cobham, Joe Zavonal, Wayne Shorter, all these guys who went on to make fusion what it was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chick Corea also. Now, Chick Corea and Lenny White. Now, Chick Corea and Lenny White formed Return to Forever mm-hmm. with Stanley Clark and Al Miola. But Stanley and Al Miola, I don't think they ever played with Miles. I see. Now, I'm not saying that Miles is everything, 
but he was a pretty good judge of talent. And although Mike Clark never played with Miles, apparently Miles saw a Herbie Hancock concert with Mike Clark and said to Herbie, that Mike overheard, I think, something to the effect of, well, now I know, now I know why you're playing with this motherfucker. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, so. Well. Miles was, a, what I'm saying is, Miles was a very good judge of talent, and he could, he could, he saw the spark and the special uniqueness of players that went on to be great. I Look, mean, maybe he could only have one bassist or one drummer yeah, at a time. He could have had Stanley if he wanted him. I think. Oh, That's okay. I mean, anyone who was anyone would have wanted to play with Miles. It, it was your dream to play with Miles. Oh, okay. That was basically it. Like Mike was that Mike's dream. Mike Clark's dream was to play with Miles. He didn't get to play with Miles, but he got to play with Herbie, who was an offshoot of Miles. I see. But he never played with Miles. Sorry to hear but, that. But Miles did recognize why he played with Herbie. All right. So that's pretty good. That's Miles a, was so yes. intense that it meant that much just to have him recognize you as something that was something. Wow. Okay. Well, I didn't realize that, but all right. So Stanley, And look at it. Okay. Miles, everyone came out of Miles. Like I said, even Marcus. Marcus, in 1980, he played with Miles, and after that, he became Marcus. Before that, he was just... Marcus? He wasn't Marcus fully yet. <laughs> he wasn't full Marcus. All right. John I mean, Schofield, Mike Stern, everyone who played with Miles went on to be monsters. I see. All right. I'm going to go down to number five now on Rolling Stone. Or is there more you'd like to call, say about Stanley Clark? No, I think Stanley was amazing, but I just thought, hey, he didn't play with Miles. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. Number five. And I'm not sure if this person played with Miles either. I don't know if Jacko ever played, ever played with Miles. All right. Well, but that's not. Now, Miles has a song on his album called Mr. Pistorius. Oh. Dedicated to Jocko. Well, that's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah, that's, that says about all. But he also has a song called Willie Nelson. So I don't know what that. Uh, maybe they met in the backstage in the dressing room. For all I know, I don't know. Maybe they enjoyed a little weed together. Yeah, either that or that joke was about Miles and Willie Nelson. <laughs> okay, that's gross. All right, uh, I'm going to number five on the Rolling Stone list. Are you ready? I am ready. Carol Kay. Should be called Carol. Okay. Her uh, cutting her teeth in fifties jazz clubs and breaking out as a studio guitarist for hit makers like Sam Cooke, Kay went on to become the most recorded bassist of all time, with more than ten thousand tracks under her belt. From the sunny swing of the Beach Boys' nineteen sixty-five track "Help Me Rhonda" to Richie Valens' now classic nineteen fifty-eight version of "La Bamba." Frank and Nancy Sinatra's romantic 1967 rendition of Something Stupid, Kay's fingerprints are all over the history of modern pop. Did they say Mission Impossible theme? 
<laughs> they will say it, and that's not even including her myriad movie and TV show themes. Uh, Hawaii Five-O. She gave the title songs for everything from Batman to Mission Impossible their uniquely groovy backbone. I was a guitar player, and I thought, God, that's kind of a simple bass line, she told, for bass players only, of the intuition that helped her guide her playing. I thought the bass could be moving around more, and the music would sound better. Her star collaborators evidently agreed. He would keep my bass sound way up in the mix, she said of Brian Wilson in 2011. On a song like California Girls, at times you can hardly hear anything else. He just liked my sound and the way I moved around the fretboard. So, are you in agreement, Carol Kay, top ten? Uh... She seems to have played on everything. Yeah, uh... Yeah, she's uh, she's as valid as uh, Paul McCartney in that regard. I mean, I, I think those songs have probably influenced a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the thing is, like, if you had a band and you were like, I want a great bass player in my band. I don't, I don't. I wouldn't choose her. Uh-huh. But on those recordings in the '60s and stuff, she was great. But I, I don't see her as being like a, a really funky, groovy bass player. I see. She's serving the music only. She plays those parts really well. But, uh-huh. Uh huh. Like I can't see her hanging with Marcus or something. Did she ever play with Miles? Hell no. Okay. Well. All right, I didn't need you'd be like that. All right, you want to talk more about Carol Kay? No, nope. you recognize her as uh, yeah, she's 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 heavy. Okay, <coughs> moving back to guitarworld.com, number four. I was confused with oh, Carol okay. King. Are you ready? Yeah, all right, number four, Larry Graham. Oh, that's good. Wait, wait, this is Guitar World? Guitar World. Yeah, I like their world. They live in a good world. You like the Guitar <clears throat> World list? Yeah, not bad. Uh, number four, it says here, the story goes that as a teenager gigging with his mother, hey, man. Larry Graham played organ pedals and guitar alongside a drummer. When the organ broke, he switched to bass until the organ could be fixed, and then the drummer left the band. That's when I started thumping with my thumb, he said years later. It was the only way I could get that rhythmic sound. And then his mama died, and he started singing. Is that true? No. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> what the fuck? Nearly half a century after Graham and his jazz bass invigorated Sly and the Family Stone standards, like Family Affair, Everyday People, and Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again, followed by Stone Cold Graham's Central Station classics like Release Yourself, Can You Handle It, and Hair, Ageless Dapper Graham is still the baddest thumbslinger around. As Victor Wooten says, he is to funk bass what the Bible is to religion. Hey now. Do you agree with Victor Wooten? He's pretty substantial, that's for sure. All right. I think we talked about him before. We certainly did. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say something else. You don't have to. He's Jehovah's Witness. He's he's the one who got Prince into that shit. Oh, is he? Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't realize. All right. Number four on Rolling Stone. Okay. Bootsy Collins. Bootsy.
Bootsy Collins or Bootsilla, Casper the Friendly Ghost, or the world's only rhinestone rock star doll, Baba, depending on the song, redefined soul and funk bass playing in the 70s and, by proxy, rap and pop in the 80s and 90s. Collins joined James Brown's uh, backing group, the JBs, in 1970 and immediately latched on to Soul Brother Number no. One's concept of The One, hitting the first beat of a musical measure as hard as possible and filling the rest of it with funkiness. Later, he stretched out that concept into a trippy wonderland when he joined George Clinton's cabal playing mushy Mawa bass in Parliament and Funkadelic before becoming a solo star fronting his own rubber band, wearing star-shaped sunglasses, playing a star-shaped bass, and singing cartoonish love songs. <gasps> Excuse me. And singing cartoonish love songs with comic book enthusiasm. You can hear his influence in practically every bass player to come since, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers Flea to the records Dr. Dre liberally sampled to create the G-Funk sound. Bootsy came along and all he added was the emphasis on the one, George Clinton once said. You could add that to the ABCs and it would be funk in two seconds. And from then on, everything we did was funky for real, no matter how pop we tried to be. That makes sense. Would you put Bootsy Collins in your top ten bass players of all times? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Is number four a good spot for him? Yeah. Or do you think he should be a little further down the list or up the list? Maybe a little further up the list. Okay. But he is great. He's he's very, very, very excellent. What uh, do you mean up the list? Maybe he's not... You think like more like around seven or something. I see, I see. I think Bootsy's most impressive playing was when he was 17 with James Brown. Okay. Uh, there's some one recording that of him playing live with him is very, very good. But other than that, he's very reserved, and he is on the one a lot, but sometimes that's all he's on. Like, he'll have so much space, he just hits the one, plays a couple of little noodles, and comes back on the one. It's cool, but it's very particular. Excellent bass player, and amazing, created that style, or expanded upon that style, but... Like, you can't compare Bootsy to Marcus, or Jocko, or Stanley, or Victor Wooten... Bootsy's not he's not in the same league but attitude wise style wise and influence wise he is so yeah he's definitely top 10 okay but he's not like top 10 technique or he's not I don't know even like if you look at all the P-Funk bass players the bass players for the parliament 
There are bass players that work with him with Parliament that are kind of better bass players than Bootsy. Uh huh. But they're not going to come up and like be in the spotlight and steal the show for 15 minutes. I see. With Bootsy's vibe. And Bootsy also invented that funk, that wah, that funk, that uh, kind of like that wah bass, that wah wah bass, the envelope filter bass, like the sounds. It's the mutated kind of synth bass sound. He kind of he kind of invented that. So it's his sound and his feel. But he's not like in the same league as Marcus. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to switch back over to Guitar World for their number three. Are you ready? Yeah. Paul McCartney. Yeah, now that makes... that Number three, that makes sense. I could see them doing that. Got to give up respect to Paul for what he's done. While Jamerson and Jocko were changing the electric bass in their own way, Paul McCartney was doing it with extreme visibility front and center with the Beatles. Early on, his bass lines were highly effective, but fairly conventional, such as the energetic, I saw her standing there, and all my loving. I mean, do you have Sting without Paul McCartney? (laughs) Maybe. Okay. Maybe not. So, Paul McCartney, you think, is better served at number three than number ten or nine? Uh, Maybe not number three, but definitely, yeah, yeah, it's very difficult. Okay. He's in there, though. That's good. I don't want to make it hard for you. No, it's just, you know, who's to say and how can you say? All right. Number three for Rolling Stone magazine, John Entwistle. Interesting. Interesting how these people are mentioning John Entwistle, but they're not uh, mentioning uh, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. Ain't that that interesting? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Entwistle was arguably the greatest rock bassist of them all, said Russia's Geddy Lee, daring to take the role and sound of the bass guitar and push it out of the murky depths while strutting those amazing chops. Yeah, I don't think uh, anyone sounded like John Entwistle. I'm, I'm pretty sure he... Yeah, no one sounded like him. No one sounded like Keith Moon or John Entwistle. So that's probably why the Who sounded like the Who. Right. Those guys are... 100% unique. Do you agree that he is number three? Or you think it's a little too high on the list? A little list? too high, but he's in the, he's a number. He's a top he's 10 top for sure. He's top 10 for sure. Okay. Number two, according to guitarworld.com. Michael Anthony. Jaco Pistorius. Oh, that's good. Uh, it's sobering to realize just how drastically Jaco Pistorius changed our world in the short time he was here. In seven years between 1975 and 1982, Jocko's staggering contributions to discs by Pat Metheny, Joni Mitchell, and Weather Report radically upended our expectations of electric bass, and he further cemented his legends on records by Herbie Hancock, Albert Mangelsdorf, uh, Michel Colombier, Al Demiola, and others. It's true. It says, three decades after Jocko's death at the hands of a South Florida bouncer, he's still the gold standard for expressiveness and intonation on fretless bass, jazz bass, back pickup tone, and 16th note stamina, but few can match his effortless blend of abundant technique and earthy groove. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Number two seems right for you? Yeah, that's fair. Or do you think number one is really... I would say number one, but that's fine. Okay. Number two, according to Rolling Stone magazine, Charles Mingus. That's a pretty heavy thing to say. I mean, yeah, he was he was amazing. He was uh, he was groundbreaking. He was also completely nuts and volatile and a maniac. And he, if you played the wrong chord, he one time slammed the keyboard case on the dude's key, fingers. I think he broke the guy's fingers. Really? Another time, he. Didn't like what the trombone player was playing, so he slammed the trombone player in the face and broke his teeth with the trombone mouthpiece. Uh, there's footage of him shooting off his shotgun in an apartment in New York City through the ceiling. And uh, belligerent lunatic. But other than that, yeah, he was a genius. What do they say about him? Uh, Charles Mingus was so much more than a bass player, composer. Yeah, it was, it was certifiable. Composer, conceptualist, classically trained cellist, social critic, that it's sometimes easy to forget how much of a force he was on his instrument. But at the heart of his lush uh, kaleidoscopic pieces was a relentless rhythmic drive that flowed from his fingers through the strings and directly into his bands, making it sound as though the soloist were jumping on a giant trampoline. Best thing about Mingus is Danny Richmond, his drummer. In my opinion. And, uh... Other than that, the best thing about Mingus is Joni Mitchell's album called Mingus, which has Jocko playing on it. Oh, okay. In my opinion. Other than that, yeah, I mean, he's a very uh, outspoken, you know, eh, I don't know. Is Mingus as good as Paul Chambers or Jimmy Garrison from Coltrane? I'm not sure. All right. So you don't necessarily agree with him as a number two? No. Not a number two. He could be a top 10 or top 20. I see. Number two? No. No. All right. All right. You ready for guitar? Especially no. considering his behavior. All right. The lunatic. They didn't mention any of that. He's a lunatic, and Jocko was a lunatic too, but Jocko has played way better. Number one, according to Guitar World magazine. Do you have any guesses? Uh, number one bass player. That would be Bruno Mars. No. Uh, that would be... Uh... Uh... I don't know who they picked. So uh, I'm just, I'm just saying, uh, going through the list so far from Guitar World magazine, seeing who they've chosen... I don't know. What are they choosing? All right. Number one... According to GuitarWorld.com, Victor Wooten, James Jamerson. No. No. The most no. 
most important and influential bass guitarist in the 66-year history of the Fender Precision he played, South Carolina-born, Detroit-raised James Jamerson wrote the Bible on baseline construction and development, feel, syncopation, tone, touch, and phrasing, while raising the artistry of the improvised bass playing in popular music to zenith levels. Man, Jocko could play jazz. <laughs> hey, Jocko could play the fastest bebop. He could play reggae. He could play classical. He could play blues like nobody. And he could play the he could play the shit that James Jamerson played, like all that sixteenth note stuff. How is James Jamerson better than Jocko? You're fucking totally out of your mind. That is such that is such a politically correct bullshit vote. Is that true? That is absolutely bullshit. No, no fucking way. Will Lee is better than James Jamerson. Okay, that's bullshit, man. Absolutely bullshit. Bullshit. You don't think he was a, a influential? Absolutely influential, John. He's top ten. He's not number one. I see. You don't okay. put him ahead of Jocko. That's fucking silly. Okay. That is silly, and you and you don't even mention Rocco Prestia. Fuck you. All right. Uh, as that's fun- stupid, okay. man. I I told you what I thought about James Jamerson, and he's highly influential and great. But like, he's not that great. Right. He's not. Okay. He. I get the motherfucker even read music. I, I don't know. I Could don't, he? Did he I don't play know. with Miles? No. Okay, I don't know. You seem to be really angry all of a sudden. That's the, You don't put James Jamerson one ahead of Jocko. You don't? No. Okay. Sorry. This is why we're doing James this. James Jamerson, wasn't he, he couldn't even play jazz, could he? I never heard him play jazz. I heard him play Motown. As funk brother number one in Motown Snake Pit, Jamerson customized his approach to fit the style of each artist he cut with, including Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, and the Supremes, Smokey Robinson, The Four Tops, The, Tempa- the Temptations, and The Jackson Five. That's all the same genre. I see. That he tops our list adds to the irony of his dying in relative obscurity in 1983 at the age of 47. So I think it's a... Uh, Can you point to one bass solo he's played on, on any recording? How do you number one and you never even had a bass solo? Stanley Clark said in his March 15 bass player cover story... Creating a bass line is much harder than doing the solo. The true genius bassists are not the ones who play a million notes. It's the ones who play... It's the, one, it's the ones whose bass lines are loved worldwide and remembered through history. Yeah, like Jocko. Like Jocko. Okay. So, Guitar Wall disappointed you in the end, apparently. I... All right. We're going to go see... If Rolling Stone can pull it out for you, who their number one basis is, are you ready? Yeah. Number one, James Jamerson. Okay. I'm about to get racist. So let's just end that. That's ridiculous. That is so, this is, this is absurd. Next next thing, we're going to have James Jamerson as the president of the United States in a fucking Hallmark movie. Okay. Well, maybe that's... Uh, Politically he... correct nonsense. You think Nonsense. It's... Okay. You don't even mention... Oh, my God. This is nonsense. You're going to tell me James Jamerson's a better bass player than Victor Wooten? 
They didn't even mention Victor Wooten. Other than that, he's they mention him, but he's not on any of these lists. Everybody knows that Victor Wooten's like the most fucking fame, popular killer bass player now. How about O'Teal? They didn't mention O'Teal? I don't know who that is. He's See? He's from Aquarium Rescue Unit and the Allman Brothers. No, they did not mention him. Yeah, like Jack Bruce compares to O'Teal. Fucking so stupid. Look, James Jamerson. Why? The, why? What? What? Number one bass player? Dude, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He's great. He's not the number one. Number one... Marcus Miller would play circles around James Jamerson. And he could play two notes or three notes and make the bass line, the song. He could play the song. But he also can play a fucking solo. Are you kidding me? Pino Palladino I just saw there. Way better than James Jamerson. I don't care if he innovated it. In the reality, these guys have taken that and they go further. Still with soul. Chops for days, but still with soul. Will Lee. Way better. Have you heard Will Lee? I have heard Will Lee. You listen to him and then listen to a recording of James Jamerson. I don't care that he influenced more people. Will Lee is better. That's bullshit. It's bullshit. If you needed, if you had a, if you had a studio and you did anything other than Motown, you're going to hire someone other than James Jamerson. If James Jamerson was so good, why was he only on Motown? I see. So you're saying he's good in his niche. Yes. He's not all around great. No. So he should not be the number one of Hell all time. Hell no. You need to have someone up there who Davey can play Davey 504 is probably better. Oh, shit. Now, I also noticed that your friend, Stuart, isn't on any of these lists. Well, that's bogus. <laughs> he's not really your friend, but I did notice he's not in the top ten of these lists. Well, there's a lot of people that have been overlooked. I see. Flea wasn't even on the list. Flea is not on the top ten uh, he's in, in there in the mix. I don't love him, but, you know, he's fucking... Influential? Yeah, he's way influential. He is number 30 on the Guitar World list. Leland Sklar, 31. Will Lee, 32. Les Claypool, 33. Nah, get the fuck out of here. I see. Uh, Nathan East, 39. Donald great, Duck Dunn. Great bass player. Victor Wooten, I yeah, think, was 13. Look, look. They, yes. why, they might as well have put Donald Duck Dunn as number one. That's he's him and James Jamerson are about the same. Is that true? They're about the same, Samerson. Same. <laughs> and they're not number one bass players. You know what? Donald Duck Dunn is number one bass player with a pipe in his mouth. I see. That's all he is. It's James Jamerson. Why wouldn't Carol Kay then be number one? I mean, I, I'm surprised she's not number two, to be quite frank, because of the wokeness of it all. Um, James Jamerson's a great bass player, but I... He's not number one. I mean, what are, what's some of the stuff he's played on? He played on a, a lot of things, apparently. Uh, these, no Rocco Prestia. I like Rocco ten times more than James Jamerson. Rocco Prestia, number 19 on Guitar World. Without Rocco, you don't got Jocko. 
Without Rocco, you've got no Jocko. Here it says, uh, Tower of Power drummer says, Without Rocco, Tower is just another horn band. There you go. He just passed away. Apparently Rocco is not on the Rolling Stone list. At all. So, uh... I really do not agree with James Jamerson being number one. That's crazy talk. You seem to be very upset by that. It's totally ridiculous. He's good. Do you want to find out who the uh, ranker said was the number one? All right. No one fucking mentions, uh... What's his name? I forget what I was thinking of. Never mind. Number one, according to ranker, is John Entwistle. That's so stupid. Number two, John Paul Jones. Number three, Les Claypool. Number four, Getty Lee. Number five, Cliff Burton. Number six, Geezer Butler. Number seven, Steve Harris. Number eight, Jocko Pistorius. Number nine, Bootsy Collins. And number 10, Chris Squire. I don't understand how these people on the... How, how are you aware of nothing outside of the cliched rock circles, but then all of a sudden you know Jocko Pistorius? What that, that doesn't even make any sense to me. It's well, it's people voting, so it could but, be well, one why? group of people voted for Jaco Pistorius, but all these other rock people are voting for rock people. Victor Wooten is number twelve on this list. Can you imagine if you existed in a world where that was true? Life would be just so simple. Mm-hmm. You'd never have to like consider rap music. You'd never have to consider R and B. Any any challenges ever come up to you that are outside of the rock world? You've just they don't exist. And life is very easy when you bury your head in the sand of rock. Number one, according to the top tens dot com, we also didn't do that one. Was Cliff Burton? Cliff Burton. <laughs> just listen to him play, man. Listen to it. It's 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 entertaining for a second. But it's not the best bass player of all time. Obviously, he's not even as good as James Jamerson. Okay. Well, there you go. Cliff uh, Burton? Man, that's rough. That's fucked up. Uh, he might be the best Metallica bass player. Okay, well, uh, that's a, not the list they have here. I, I knew that some of these lists would annoy you. Um, I didn't realize that the number one on the Rolling Stone and Guitar World were, would, would so infuriate you. It doesn't make any sense. All right. It's like... And so your number one would be Jocko? Yeah. And who would your number two be? Marcus. And your number three? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Jocko and Marcus. Boom. <laughs> and no one, they don't mention Paul Jackson from the fucking Headhunters? I have not seen Paul Jackson's name. Yeah. Bastards. All right. So, uh, all right. Well, this I'm surprised they didn't mention Roger Waters. Roger Waters is on one of the lists, but fairly... F- How about frickin' Peter Cetera? Nope, nope, did not see him. 25 or 6 to 4. Did not see Gene Simmons either. Yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, How about Aston, Family Man? No. What? How about Carlton Barrett? I have not seen that. Aston, name. wait, no. Aston, Family Man Barrett. No. Oh, man. Sorry. No, Aston? I have not seen those names. Okay. So this has been our 
99th episode, David. How, which one? 99. Hey, now. Agent, <laughs> Agent 99? Agent 99. 99 Luftballs. Would you believe once around the bathtub? I don't know what that is. Is that it's some a sort get of... smart uh, reference. I see. Uh, I once swam around the ocean. Okay. Would you believe twice around the bathtub? Mm. Would you believe... That was the thing. He'd I say, see. would you believe? And then it would get worse and worse. It was his version I can, of I can tell you're I'm kidding by your reaction. <laughs> I can tell you. Not by your reaction. I'm kidding. What was that from? I don't know. From me. No, you said, no. You didn't make that up. What? You didn't say, you didn't make up. Who made it up? I don't, we saw it in a movie. and we then did? You said, I think so. I feel like I made it up. You made up. I can tell by your reaction. I'm kidding. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe it's like a stand-up routine. I'm telling you, I made this shit up. Yeah, I think you might have made it up. <laughs> you might have made it up. I. Uh... I don't. I can't. It's not coming up. Yep, it's all me, babe. It's, <laughs> well, that's that's brilliant. Maybe we should we should cut it out and uh, quickly copyright it. Okay. No, we're not cutting it out. Um. Anyway. So this has been episode number ninety nine of the Middle Age Cool Kids Super Terrific Podcast, featuring your pals Dave and Shecky. Uh, it started off pretty good, but it ended on a really uh, sour note, especially when you claimed, I'm about to get racist. And I thought that was unnecessary. Oh. Well, they forced me. Okay. They're forcing my hand. <laughs> no one forced you. Jocko deserves number one. Okay. And Marcus number two. Yes. I see. And... Uh, no number three. No number three. Just It's just one and two. There's no other top ten. There doesn't need to be. All right, so not Larry Graham. Sting's not in there at all? Sting is not in the top ten. They don't understand the power of Sting, baby. I guess not. Would you put Sting in the top ten? No, but okay. I just thought, well, then, I thought they might. All right. Well, they, uh, I don't know. I think they wanted to be woke, and uh, Sting is uh, blonde hair, blue eyed. So they, you can't, he's not, you cannot. Nordic Sting. Nordic Sting, exactly. All right. All right. Well, I guess that's it for now, unless you have something else you want to say. Uh, Did I say you remind me to say something? Yes. It's too late. Why? Because it's too long. Okay. We'll have to do it next time. All right. All right. Well, this is uh, this has been fun, and we will see you next time for episode one hundred. Should we do something special? Something special, perhaps. All right. If you have missed all of our other episodes, you can head over to macpodcast.com and catch up on all of them. Also, we have macradio.com, which is an online radio station that right now just has music and uh, a couple of. Uh, encore presentations of our podcast late at night on the weekends we are going to go live on there we just have to figure out in what way and how to do it um also if you have a 
personal top 10 list, that is your personal top 10 list, why don't you send it to us at middleagecoolkids at gmail.com. Send us your top 10 list because I think we're going to start putting them together and airing them once or twice a week. What do you think about that? That sounds like a plan. Well, hopefully people will do it. I think sometimes people don't want to reach out. Well, reach out? I think on YouTube, mostly the people who listen to us on YouTube are just really listening to your reaction videos. They just love them. Well, I don't know what to say about that. Well, I just wish they would love you in this longer format. Well, I just discovered a still up on Old Man Creek Road. Okay. That we're going to have to go break it up. We have been watching some uh, Andy Griffith show recently. There's so. an illegal still up there on Old Man Creek Road. I, there used to be stills used to be in, in sitcoms a lot, and then they're not even mentioned anymore. How do you do that? Is, is that illegal? Stills? Yeah. Is it still illegal? <laughs> uh, I guess it is illegal. I don't even know. I mean, people brew their own beer. I don't know the difference. I don't either. Maybe you can make a certain amount of your own moonshine. It, maybe as long as you're not selling it. I was going to say, maybe it's tax reasons. Maybe Uncle Sam wants your, your tax dollars. Well, I think Mayberry was a dry county. Oh, is that true? Yep. Is that why Otis was always in jail? Yes, it was a dry county. Oh, okay. Well, see, I didn't know that. There you go. All right. That is it for us this week. Um, please do head over to the YouTube channel, though, because there are a lot of Dave reaction videos that people really seem to dig. So uh, maybe they like them because I'm not. Hey, thank you. <laughs> it's fine. I get it. I'm a shrew. No, I know. Hey, hey, take it easy. Now. All right. It's fine, David. It's fine. Jeez. All right. We will see you next time, America. Get out of this town by sunset now. Otherwise, I'm going to break up your steel. Okay.